Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Parts of western New England have gotten months' worth of rain in just a few days, leading to massive flooding. Now, here in Chicago, we saw more than the average rainfall for the entire month of July in one day, filling thousands of residents' basements. This after months of being in a drought. So what's going on? Here to help us understand how climate change is affecting how much rain we do or don't get is Trent Ford, Illinois state climatologist. Welcome back, Trent. Hey, Sasha. Can you put these numbers in perspective for us, Trent? How common is it to see months worth of rain in a single day or over just a two-day period? Yeah, so, you know, we try to estimate kind of recurrence interval of of intense rainfall events for lots of different purposes, infrastructure uh, design in particular. And yeah, I mean, some of the the totals that we saw in the 24-hour period in places like Berwyn and Cicero approached what we call the the, the 100-year or 1% annual exceedance event. Mm -hmm. What that means is is that getting that much rain, let's say 7 to 8 inches in a 24-hour period, you have a 1% chance of getting that or more in any given year. Uh, So pretty unusual to get that amount of rain in that short a period of time. But as you kind of alluded to, uh, you know, we're seeing all across the country, not just in Illinois, these types of intense rainfall events are increasing in their frequency. So those estimated, uh, you know, return periods are, are, are not necessarily valid for the next, let's say, 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. Well, earlier in the show, Trent, we talked about air quality. So, I wonder how we should understand the relationship between the, this triple whammy of weather events that we've we've seen recently in our area. Uh, and by that, I mean the extreme heat and then the air pollution and flooding. It's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to reconcile. You know, oh, yeah, we, we've been busy uh, this summer. Um, you know, the, the uh, most things in the weather are, are connected with atmospheric patterns, kind of large-scale patterns across the continent. And so um, the, the, the air quality issues that we've been experiencing are related to wildfires in Canada. We get kind of northeast flow, meaning it's coming from northeast to southwest, coming bringing that polluted air down to us. Um, and, and the same kind of, uh, kind of atmospheric or weather pattern that, that caused that flow also tended to keep drier and actually slightly cooler air over much of Illinois for the last three months. And so the same kind of patterns that brought us the poor air quality mm-hmm. also contributed to the persistent drought. Uh, and, and unfortunately, you know, we broke that, that at least uh, not entirely, but partly broke that drought with just a really intense rainfall event uh, that's not really necessarily connected to the air quality problems of the drought. And so, uh, yeah, you know, but, but that's what of, had me the of, most confused, though, Trent, is, is being in a drought and then getting so much rain that we saw like 2,000 yeah. complaints of flooded basements just in one day. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing is that is that there's there's a part of it to say that that we can have this precipitation variability where we go periods of time without very little rain and then really intense rainfall. That's part of, of you know, Illinois' climate. However, there is more and more research is suggesting that that variability, that's really the name that we can kind of attach to it, the variability of precipitation where we go three months with very little rainfall and then we get the whole month's worth of rain in six hours, that variability is increasing all across the Midwest. And so when you look back the last three months and add up all the rainfall in place like Cicero, for example, says, hey, it's near normal rainfall over the last three months, but we know it didn't work out that way. We had serious drought impacts. And then, as you mentioned, hundreds of basins flooded when we get all that rain at once.
Last week, we spoke with Kevin Fitzpatrick, who's uh, assistant director of engineering with the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago. Here's what he had to say about the amount of flooding events that the city is experiencing. What we're seeing is more and more frequently these sort of supercell type storms that are very, very intense and just sit over an area of the city. So remind us, Trent, what a supercell storm is and and how common it is for for those storms to sit over one area? Yeah, so a supercell is a type of thunderstorm uh, that is particularly intense. So it's got really intense uplift. It means the air that that, that lifts up from the surface to the upper part of the atmosphere, that's really what drives that thunderstorm. Uh, It's really intense. So therefore, the the air coming down is intense. The precipitation can be intense. And supercells generate a lot of the tornadoes that we see, too. And I think that what Kevin, I mean, Kevin's point there is really important is it's not all that rare to get a big thunderstorm that generates a lot of rain in a short period of time in the Mm -hmm. summertime in Illinois. When When we go from typical thunderstorm to really big problems, with flooding, it's the persistence that matters. And so often what we'll get is what we saw couple couple weeks ago where the the it wasn't just one thunderstorm the thunderstorms were essentially training which essentially one thunderstorm pops up it rains and another one pops up behind it and it goes and affects one place for hour after hour after hour and that's how we can get those really intense thunderstorms so it's the persistence of those thunderstorms that really makes what takes a what we consider an ordinary but intense summertime thunderstorm into a real big problem when folks are getting seven to eight inches of, of rain in in one day so Sounds like there are two things at play here, right? Climate change and infrastructure. How much is climate change yeah. contributing to these floods and, and how much is it other factors like, you know, how stormwater is managed or how homes were built, for instance? Yeah, it's a really it's a really good question. I don't have great percentages of how much is due to climate change, how much is due to infrastructure. You know, certainly we're seeing these intense precipitation events get more frequent. Uh, and so infrastructure that was built to, let's say, a 100-year storm that was maybe six inches of rain in a 24-hour period of time, you know, 50 years ago, well, that 100-year that storm is now eight inches of rain. So the, the risk of getting uh, overtopping of stormwater drainage system, flooding in people's basements, it's higher now than it was 20, 30 years ago, maybe when some of those people bought those, those places or moved in. Um, and so part of it is that trend in climate change. Part of it is the fact that infrastructure is extremely expensive to replace and is thought to be built in a stationary climate. Stationary meaning the climate's not changing. Uh, but we know that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. So when we're building infrastructure that has a 50 to 100-year lifespan, it has to be built to the climate in which it will reside, which is honestly not the climate we had 100 years ago and mm-hmm. may not be the climate we have now. Yeah, to that end, can you explain this? The, the U.S. government measures how frequently we'll see rainfall, but there are concerns that the, the measurements aren't keeping up with the variability that climate change is bringing. What's going on? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, so the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, is in charge of uh, these precipitation estimates for the country uh, to say, okay, if, if we want to take this risk of a 1% annual exceedance, the 100-year storm, as I mentioned before, here's what your total is. So if you're building a subdivision, a cul-de-sac, whatever it may be, um, here's where the, the engineering, here's where you need to build to the standard. And that takes on a level of risk. Your risk is 1% chance of exceeding that any given year. The problem, as we, as we kind of talked about here, is that that risk is changing. 
And so what it requires is, an, is a very uh, 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 frequent update of those numbers so that we're not staying static. And, and what we've seen is that for much of the country, those numbers of what a 100-year storm is, mm-hmm. what that 1% annual exceedance looks like, is now 20 to 25 years old. Uh, and so it, it's antiquated. Now, we, we you know, in, in lieu of the federal government updating those numbers, the state water survey here in Illinois just published a couple of years ago, Bulletin 75, which updated the numbers just in Illinois. And what we saw in the Chicagoland area is that between 1989, when the last bulletin was published by the water survey, and 2019, that 30-year period, mm-hmm. the 24-hour, 100-year storm jumped by an inch in Chicago. So all these places that are building to a seven-inch, let's say, storm, well, now it's eight inches. So all of that infrastructure is antiquated, just built in the last 30 years. So you can see if you, if you take that and, and, and multiply it by all the problems going around around the country, we really see a significant problem. So what it means is that the federal government has got to be updating those numbers at least once every 10 years, um, and, and that's sort of the problem moving forward. Uh, now, ideally, we would not just update those numbers using historical observations, but we would incorporate projected future rainfall data mm-hmm. so that when we're building that subdivision that's going to last 50 to 100 years, that it's built for what we expect or anticipate that 100-year storm to look like in 2050 or 2080. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, t- to that end, Chicago saw the highest number of flooding complaints in a single day since 2019, which is the earliest year that this data is available. You know, early in the lockdown in 2020, Trent, with with millions of, of fewer people driving on the roads, we right away we saw air pollution improve. Right? Does it work the same yeah. way though with precipitation? Like, are, are there things that we could do now that would have measurable results in the short term? Well, it depends. I mean, from a municipal, uh, a county, a statewide level, there's certainly infrastructure upgrades that we really need to be doing to make sure that our stormwater drainage systems, just our water infrastructure, is built for the types of precipitation and the runoff that we are getting now uh, and, and are likely Uh, going to get over the next 20 to 30 years. Um, But as an individual, there are things that we can do um, to kind of help reduce that runoff when we get those really intense precipitation events. So there's messaging that goes out that says, don't run your dishwasher, don't don't take showers while we're getting those really intense rainfall events, because all that water is being added. Your your kind of water from your sinks, your showers, your whatever, are being added to the stormwater system and and overloading it. Uh, We can also do things like buying rain barrels or implementing rain gardens where it's possible. And what those things do is they kind of reduce the surge of rainwater when we get those really heavy storms and can reduce the amount of stormwater drainage systems. You know, those things that the individuals can do, they're really important, but really what this requires is a is a kind of a larger uh, overview of urban planning in general and planning for a wetter and perhaps more intense precipitation climate in Chicago and around the state um, than, than what we've had previously. Well, I have you here, Trent. The, the New York Times just published an article about what scientists are calling underground climate change. So th- this has to do with how heat from basements and parking garages and train tunnels and more, how it seeps into the surrounding soil and clay, and it leads to to rising underground temperatures, and how this could eventually lead to cities sinking. What? 
Yeah, you know, <laughs> this is something that <laughs> that I am haven't been familiar with before. You know, the New York Times published this, and um, at least not in in great detail. But yeah, I mean, what you described is exactly the case. Is that studies from Northwestern here in Chicago showing that uh, because of all that underground infrastructure and the waste heat from air conditioning systems, subways, things like that, um, are, 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 are deforming, are, are, are stretching and compressing the, the bedrock on which the city is based, is built, and wow. that we're seeing subsidence from that. And so, you know, this is, I think, um, this is something that really needs to be explored in greater detail. And, uh, you know, if this is if something that we're going to continue to see with increasing warming, uh, not just in Chicago, but nationwide, then this uh, is another avenue where we really need to be, um, you know, mitigating by, by updating our infrastructure to make sure that we're not seeing these, you know, pretty large impacts from, you know, infrastructure impacts from something like this. Yeah. As we talked earlier about the extreme weather we've been seeing, you said we've been busy this summer. No kidding. <laughs> Yeah, it's been wild, you know, and you add on the derecho that came through central Illinois um, and the extreme heat that yeah. southern Illinois has been dealing with uh, statewide. It, it's definitely been busy. I, I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll give you one for now. Trent Ford is Illinois' state climatologist. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Sasha. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Passengers having to swim out of flooded cars on major through fares in parts of New England. A month's worth of rain falling in a single storm throughout the country. Thousands of basements flooding in one day in Chicago. We know that these severe storms and flooding are byproducts of climate change. And to slow the warming of our planet, local, state, and federal governments must act now to reduce our emissions. So joining us to give insight into how Chicago is tackling this goal is Kyra Woods, Policy Director for the city's Environment and Sustainability team. Welcome back, Kyra. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm curious what went through your mind last weekend when we saw this flash flood, which days after dangerous air quality and then extreme heat. Absolutely. Um, I was just thinking about a conversation I was having with a, a partner and a community partner, and they said, um, I don't call this climate warming or, you know, just global climate change. This is climate weirding because yeah. it's just weird. Yeah. You know? And seeing all of those things at once in Chicago, I think, is making the conversation really real for many residents. Um, and it is also kind of challenging um, to switch gears uh, as, as a government, but also with various community partners, too. Um, when we think of what are we alerting people to, how do we get information out, um, and what do we need people to know immediately? So as you can imagine, each of those extreme weather situations um, kind of requires a different, you know, hat, you know, to be thinking about. Right. Uh, but I really think it was it was unusual and is making the conversation very real for many. Well, let's listen to Mayor Brandon Johnson reflecting on the storm. Clearly, the, the earth is speaking to us loud and clear. We're extreme weather. Um, it's taking place all over the country. And unfortunately, because of um, some of the failed policies of the past that have left our environment vulnerable, um, this is not likely the last um, extreme example of weather. What are your thoughts on that, Kyra? 
I think that the mayor is right. This is not going to be the last example of extreme weather, um, nor is it the first, right? Chicago has um, has a great emergency management team that is prepares for these types of disasters or at least extreme events. Um, and so I think what will be required, right, is a tighter conversation and a, a, a urgent conversation about resiliency, understanding that in even a week's time, we could experience very different um, uh, events that require residents to act quickly and for residents to be aware of what they can do, what they will need to do, what the government can do, or, you know, where they may need to seek another um, partner for assistance. So I really encourage to hear the statement by the mayor in that way, because I do think it requires collaborative effort across industries and across partners and, of course, across geographies. The Climate Action Plan that was adopted last year, it set a goal of reducing the city's carbon emissions by 62% by the year 2040. Uh, Briefly remind listeners how that plan can guide city policy. Oh, that's a a really great question, and I'm I'm happy to share. Um, You know, carbon emissions and reducing our carbon emissions is really important for the global conversation around our changing climate. Um, And so as we think about the journey to an equitable and just uh, transition for our fuel sources, right, and thinking about building electrification, you know, how do we not just have a policy-centered conversation about those things, but really make it real and accessible for all residents in Chicago, whether you're a tenant or a homeowner, whether you are a business um, owner or, you know, perhaps you own own a two-flat or a single-family home in in the city. And so the Climate Action Plan really seeks to have a broad conversation, not only just about carbon emission reductions, but also about doing so in a way that is inclusive and prioritizes communities that have um, borne the burden of these types of changes and these, you know, whiplash-worthy and events, but also um, in a way that, you know, allows those communities to be prioritized for funding opportunities or at least further research so that we can identify policies that will um, be supportive. But then also the Climate Action Plan, the lead with this pillar of the plan, really does focus on strategies that aren't solely focused on emission reductions. And while not all climate action plans traditionally pick that up, we were uh, intentional in doing that in Chicago because we know that resiliency is about connectedness and Mm -hmm. cohesion and preparedness, right? And that doesn't immediately always track to carbon emission reductions, but is critical because of what we have seen over the last few weeks. Right. So uh, part of, you know, meeting that goal of of slashing emissions in in less than 20 years is is this plan to decarbonize buildings. What what buildings are you focusing on first? Yeah. So I I promise I'm not trying to cop out by saying we're trying to focus on many, (laughs) but we are trying to have a, a robust conversation about what this means for multifamily you know, buildings and homes, as well as municipal buildings. Um, And then, of course, we know we need to continue to have the support of the private sector. Um, And so we have a renewed interest at, you know, reviewing our municipal properties to think about how we can increase investments in energy efficiency first so that we can reduce our energy needs. And then, of course, thinking about how we can power um, our energy, power our buildings with uh, alternative um, sources. Gratefully, work has already begun in that space, um, as you know, uh, even before this particular administration. Um, and we're excited about the ways that we are now trying to have that conversation at a more hyper-local level um, as we consider homes as right. well. And then, of course, 
federal funding is making this a, a game-changing conversation as well. So, you know, we as the team here at the city are trying to not only stay abreast of what those grant opportunities or those planning grant opportunities are, um, but we are we do want to also make sure that organizations or community associations that are poised to have access to that money can do so, um, and so that we can all be addressing different parts of this problem mm-hmm. uh, with the tools. So emissions from cars, trucks, buses, and and so on. We know that those are the the biggest uh, contributors to climate change and improving green transit options. That's going to be a key part in this climate action plan. Uh, So listed in in this section are a number of provisions in the short term. One of them is updating land use policies. What land is being considered? And quickly tell us what the goal is there. Sure. So I would briefly acknowledge that um, the a, a legacy of policies has ultimately created, right, it, it governs how we build out our city, how we develop our city. And as we think more critically about things like cumulative impact, um, it is important that we are thinking about how residents are adjacent to in, industrial areas, right, industrial corridors, or maybe it is just several sites um, that have a, a, a a stronger manufacturing focus or where there may be more medium or heavy duty vehicles that may idle. Um, and so as we think about um, land use and zoning and development, it's critical that we are thinking about that through um, a lens of equity and justice. And that truly is making way for our historic conversation as a city about cumulative impact and cumulative burden that some communities um, have shouldered. Yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, adapting urban planning to, to meet the current reality of this severe weather? Oh, I think it's, it's critically important, and I'm grateful for the colleagues that, you know, remain um, not even just prepared, who are already doing that. Um, I think the climate change conversation is, you know, I'm glad that you had Dr. Trent on the call, but, you know, we are thinking about models, we are thinking about research, but we need a clear infrastructure strategy that ensures that we are thinking about climate resiliency um, and and really just building for the future. So whether we're talking about nature-based solutions or the, um, you know, the materials that we use to build our city and pave our city or the, the you know, social cohesion and communication strategies that are required so that people know where to go, when to go, and what they can expect when they're there. Those are the, like the hard and the soft infrastructure that is required. Yeah. Um, and so that's going to take coordination from our emergency management team, our Department of Family and Support Services, um, as well as, of course, our traditional infrastructure teams like water or the planning department, too. So uh, before I let you go, Kyra, you're working under a different administration than when we last spoke. So How are you hoping to continue all this work under the Johnson administration? I think even the clip that you shared um, during this segment is is, is important and is clear that the mayor um, cares about this type of work. I think also in that press conference, he he, a piece that sticks out was he, he said basements in Chicago are as Chicago as everything else. And time and time again, you know, he is able to connect these some some people would call this the existential crisis. And for so many pe- years, people did. But when your basement floods or when you were concerned about an elder not having air conditioning, right? Yeah. These are the ways these, you know, weather events show up in our homes and can rock our communities and can rock our families. And so I'm really hopeful and always encouraged when I hear these, you know, very accessible ways that the mayor talks about this work. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for the colleagues who continue to see this as something to weave into their 
into their given work, no matter their department. So I'm encouraged um, because these are the ways that we need to have the conversation, both at a global level, right, the macro level with things like the Climate Action Plan and relevant policy, Mm -hmm. as well as the micro level that tends to people's needs uh, at the home. Kyra Woods is policy director for the city's environment and sustainability team. Thank you so much for your time. Always thank you for the invitation. Take care. You too. Let's bring another voice into the conversation. Margaret Frisbee is the executive director of Friends of the Chicago River, also founder of the Greater Chicago Watershed Alliance. Welcome back, Margaret, and good to see you in person finally. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted. You've been listening along to that conversation. Give us your initial reaction. Well, I mean, I think that Kyra's right. We really need to focus across all city departments, all government agencies, and work together on resiliency and looking at heat, looking at water, looking at flooding, but also looking at air pollution and the legacy of pollution we face. Mm -hmm. And think about how we can work together to clean it up and address it all together and make it urgent. So why form this alliance and who's involved? Yeah, so the Greater Chicago Watershed Alliance was founded by Friends of the Chicago River in 2020. And our goal was really to bring together government agencies and nonprofit partners to work together to work across typical jurisdictional boundaries, right? So we all have a pool of money. Well, maybe not the nonprofits, but, you know, we work together Mm -hmm. and but we all have, you know, our own money and we're going to have a bigger impact if we look at these problems that we were just you've been discussing all morning systemically. Right. So you can't go Cook County, Lake County, Chicago, you know, Lake Forest, it's all a region and we function together. So we brought in, um, or well, the foundation is really based upon this idea of nature-based solutions, but using natural solutions to manage stormwater because that has so many co-benefits, right? Mm-hmm. So we can address the urban heat island effects. We can address combined sewer overflows into the river. You can address basement backup uh, flooding, mm-hmm. right? All through nature-based solutions. And I want to make sure we all get that. What do nature-based solutions look like? So this, basically look out your window and think green, not gray, right? We have this tendency in urban areas to look out the window and think, oh, well, it's a built environment. We can't absorb stormwater. We can't have trees. We can't have nature. You have to go somewhere else for that. But really, if you imagine how every time we do a new development or we, you know, imagine a parking lot at a grocery store, a portion of all of it can be green. It can absorb stormwater. It can help pollinators and it can be beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so it improves environmental health, quality of life, and also builds resiliency and in biodiversity, frankly. So we invited um, to participate with us, you know, the big government stormwater agencies. So that's the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, right? Yes. Um, And then, of course, Lake County Stormwater Management, because the headwaters of the Chicago River System are in Lake County. Also, CMAP, the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. Um, More recently, we've recruited the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, the Nature Conservancy, Open Lands, Alliance for the Great Lakes. And the idea is we're all going to work together to look across the region together and say, where can we implement nature-based solutions? Where are the priority areas where we want to do it? And how can we change the way that we live using nature as a multi-purpose, multi-beneficial opportunity to do that? So ground us a little bit more. How fragmented are our habitats and how much wetlands have we lost? Oh, you know, the number for the state of Illinois is something I forget. Someone I'm sure you've spoken with recently would tell you exactly, but something like 98%, just huge. A lot. A lot. And so, so where, how can we restore these habitats? Well, but, you know, we can do a lot of things. So the Chicago Park District has really embraced natural areas. And so they have a department that 
that increases natural areas. We just finished, as part of the Greater Chicago Watershed Alliance, we helped with to finish a project at Indian Ridge Marsh South. And that was a place in the Calumet region where it's, a I think, a 145-acre park um, that's old wetlands. And they've been kind of destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we did is we got some grant money and worked together to develop a project with the park district to restore the area. So you're building resilience. It's a, it's a hemi marsh, so it's absorbing more stormwater. So it's functioning to help absorb water, but it's also habitat for wildlife, really importantly. And then we also added infrastructure so the people that live in the neighboring communities can use the park recreationally. And so those are great examples, you know, working with the Forest Preserve District, figuring out connectivity. Mm -hmm. Friends of the Chicago River developed our Habitat Connectivity Action Plan. And there's all kinds of public rights of way where you can actually add nature and people can enjoy it, but it also benefits wildlife. Yeah, the Greater Chicago Watershed Alliance, um, you formed in July of 2020, right? And you've, you've actually also come up with this interactive tool. It, it's meant to help people and governments make decisions about tackling things like community flooding and health conditions that are stemming from all the various environmental factors that we've been we've been talking about. How did that come to be? Yeah, so thank you for asking that question. So when the Alliance started our work, we were really looking at, you know, how do we work together? How can we, you know, join funds? Who should be a partner? And one of the things we realized right away is we had to understand where we were working and what was our priority as a group, because we all have our own statutory missions, right? Yeah. And so mapping became important. And then obviously there's lots of mapping out there. and. The Trust for Public Land, who's one of the partners, offered up a model that they use for it called the decision support tool. So we adapted this tool into the natural solutions tool and added this layer of trying to improve biodiversity at the same mm. time. How are you hoping that it gets used? Oh, well, that's a well, basically, our, we want to use it for advocacy. So mm-hmm. protecting space. So you can look at your own community, you can put in where you live and find out what the demographics are, the people who live there, whether or not you have open space, whether or not you're in a flood prone area. And the lens of the tool, it's really important to share, which is equity, public health, biodiversity, resiliency, and greenway connectivity. And wow. so you can look across 1300 square miles, 176 municipalities, 42 sub watersheds, and you will be able to see where there's issues and where mm-hmm. you can apply nature and where nature will work to help solve those problems. we got a minute left, Margaret, but in your view, uh, I, I think there needs to be a bit of a mental shift, right? And not just investing in building and starting green infrastructure, also funding, maintaining this infrastructure. So, I mean, what's the current landscape and why is that part important? So with Funding green, we can get the projects funded and the money is not out there for maintenance. And, you know, the United States doesn't score high on gray infrastructure maintenance, but green infrastructure is one of the things that improves people's health, it improves communities, it improves biodiversity, it builds resiliency. And we have to change the way we think of it as a, you know, as like it's, it, we think of it as an afterthought that green infrastructure is yeah. not really infrastructure when it is. And it's actually more beneficial than a lot of gray infrastructure. So it's a mental shift that we all have to make the way we do in urban areas where we have to imagine green where there's gray right now. Yeah. I love that. Imagine green where there's gray. Margaret Frisbee, who co-convened co- rather the Greater Chicago Watershed Alliance. She's also the executive director of Friends of the Chicago River. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Good Thank you. you.